All right, we'll eventually get to the book of Ephesians, but that's going to be a minute or two. Book of Ephesians, we are... It's a big morning for us here at Providence. It's always a big morning for us, uh, really, anytime that we get together, but it's an especially big morning for us whenever we finish up a series. And we've been in this series that we're in right now since uh, sometime midsummer, around June or so. Uh, and so it, we, we usually take a while for sermon series, and so anytime that we wrap one up, it's always a big, uh, a big morning for us. And there's a lot that I would love to say and kind of recap and go back and talk about and cover. There's a lot that I would like to do uh, looking at what we've done this, this, uh, uh, throughout this series. But uh, in all honesty, as we kind of prepare for Thanksgiving and we prepare for traditions or maybe... Uh, new things that we have to do this year, depending on what you can do travel-wise and what you can't. Um, I, I really want to zero in on just a couple of things this morning. So this won't be the uh, the full kind of biblical breakdown of a passage that we would typically do. This is not going to be our uh, full kind of lay it all out. Instead, what I want to do is kind of reflect back a little bit on what we've covered and then I want to explain why that fits so well with Thanksgiving, because uh, in my mind, and I don't know if this is the case for you yet, but hopefully it will be if it's not, in my mind, looking at the attributes of God, the nature of God, who He is, why He does what He does, and Thanksgiving are two things that are intimately tied together. These are things that are closely linked to one another. And as long as we can keep those things tied together, we'll be in a good place. But when we begin to separate those things, things will go uh, askew. And so this year we've, um, we've been studying these things, looking at these things, and I think it will lead us well into the week that we have ahead. This past week, uh, many of you guys have had to do distance learning for, for your, your kids. If your kids are in Jeff County schools, you guys have uh, had to do that. We've chosen to do that for our kids for the entire school year due to uh, due to Emily's uh, kind of immune system and the medicines that she's taking, we've kept our kids at home, which initially they were like, no, that sounds terrible. But now they're like, hey, I can wear my pajamas and I can sleep a little bit later and I can actually get my work done a little bit faster. So this, this works. They can get their work done a little bit faster once they've figured out a routine and assuming that they actually understand what they're, uh, they're doing. And so over the course of the last, the last few months, we've had some really good weeks. We've had some other weeks where it's like, hey, you're going to go back to, to school and we're just going to leave you there. Uh, we've, we've had all that kind of stuff, all those, those moments over the last few weeks. You homeschool families are like, yeah, welcome to our world. Um, I get it. So we're figuring it out too. Uh, but this, these past couple of weeks, I've helped Isaiah with science. He's in, he's in fifth grade and I've helped him with, with science. And what they've been studying in science is the solar system. And so it's all right for me to kind of help with that a little bit because I've always been pretty interested in space and the solar system. And uh, so I kind of like learning some of this stuff again that I probably learned when I was in third grade and have forgotten all of it. And we've been looking at uh, like red giants and blue giants and dwarf stars and all that kind of stuff and learning about the planets, which I still think Pluto has gotten a raw deal in all of this. But uh, we have eight planets now, not nine. It just depends on, I don't know. But it's been, it's been good to learn this and to, to, to watch all this stuff with Isaiah. I've actually kind of enjoyed some of it. Uh, and then yesterday on, video, on YouTube, uh, a video popped up of a guy named Mark Robert. I don't know if you guys know who this Mark Rober guy is. You may have seen some of his, his viral videos that he's got, like the, the 
uh, the glitter bomb for the package thieves. If you've seen that at some point, that's the same guy. Uh, if you've seen the one that got pretty popular this summer of the squirrels that get like flipped all over the place, same guy. Uh, he does all kinds of crazy stuff. I think he used to be like a rocket scientist with NASA or something, and now he just makes YouTube videos. But they're pretty good YouTube videos, and they're, they're pretty fun to watch. And so he, he, he had this one where he was talking about the, the solar system and how there are almost no good pictures of the solar system to actually put things to scale and to actual size. So this first picture that we've got here, if you'll put that first picture up, this is the, the typical picture that you'll get of here's the solar system. And I like how it says down here in the bottom corner, FYI, distance not to scale. Um, this is going to be everything that you look at when it comes to the solar system. But this is what we think of with our solar system typically. We may even have the, the planets kind of closer in size and not, not so, so different. But this is typically what, what we see. And I don't know if you guys have looked out in your uh, night sky over the last few nights, but you've been able to see all at once. You could see Mars, you could see Jupiter, you could see Saturn that, that's out there. It's been pretty cool to see all this kind of stuff. But this is the typical picture of, of the solar system. But what you find out as you kind of uh, you, you listen to some of this is that this is not at all what our actual universe looks like. It looks nothing like this. This is, if you're, this is your mental image of how the universe looks or how the, the solar system looks, then you are completely off. But this is almost all of us. And so there's a video here where he uses the soccer ball as the sun, and then he wants to kind of set everything to scale based off of that. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to show a video clip in just a second, but... There's a chance this may kill the live feed because I totally don't have permission to use this. So we'll see how this goes. If the live feed goes dead, we will start another one, and I promise you we'll be up real quick. But I think we're going to be all right. It's less than a minute, and I'll show you this clip, and I promise you there's a reason I'm, I'm teaching you about the solar system. So go okay, ahead and show so that before clip. Before we get to the new ninth planet, let's recap. So we've got a pepper flake at the 10-yard line for Mercury, and then a pinhead at the 18-yard line for Venus... And then another pinhead for Earth at the 26-yard line. And then a pepper flake for Mars at about the 40. And then, of course, the asteroid belt. And then we make it to Jupiter, which is a grape, at about 135 yards. Then we cross the street to get to Saturn, which is a grape that orbits at about two and a half football fields around our soccer ball sun. Then we double our distance from the sun to get to the seventh planet, which is a P, at five football fields away. And finally, at nearly eight football fields away from our sun, we have another P, which is Neptune. And All right, so we'll stop there. The whole video is really cool. Hopefully you're still with us on YouTube. Um, the whole video is really cool. You, you can go watch the whole thing. It kind of sets all this stuff uh, up, and it, it covers all kinds of different things. But that gives you a better idea of the scale of things that we're, we're working with when we talk about the solar system, how much bigger things are, how much further things are apart, how small the planets are in comparison to uh, the sun and all that, all that is, that is out there. So when you compare that to the first, the first picture, put that first picture up there again. If you compare that to the, uh, the first picture, they're barely anything alike. I mean, loosely, they're talking about the same thing, but they're barely anything uh, alike. This one is an attempt to show us something. But it's nothing like the reality of what is 
of what is out there. I told you all about the book that I, I read uh, about the Apollo 8 mission. This book seems to keep coming up. I really love this book. Um, we, we actually listened to it again this summer whenever we made a, a trip to Florida this summer and we saw a rocket launch. We listened to this book again uh, with, with uh, my family in the car and it's just a great book. And uh, one of the things that the astronauts talk about is that they are struck by their view of the earth as they leave the earth and they head toward the moon. They are struck by, uh, as they, as they, as they uh, get further and further away from earth, how small earth looks to them. And whenever they look out the window, the, one of the astronauts, Jim Lovell, says a lot, I could, I could put my thumb up in front of the window and I could cover up the entire earth with just the, the end of my thumb, with just my, my thumbnail. I could cover up everything that I've ever known, everyone that I've ever loved, everything that's ever meant anything to me. I could cover it up with just my thumbnail. Well, now, we know how that's possible. We can do that. We know that's possible because it's not really to scale. Obviously, earth is bigger than his thumbnail, but his perspective from where he's at, his thumb looks just as big as the earth does to him. And it's all because of the perspective and the way he views things. Friends, this is how things work with us when it comes to God. Our perspective is off. We don't see God to scale. When we talk about God, whenever we consider God, we consider who he is, we try to put him into categories that we can understand. As we've gone through each of these attributes, we've tried to make it somewhat relatable, somewhat uh, a way for us to kind of pull things out, even if it's just to say God is not like this and he's not like that in order to somehow communicate what he is like. We don't fully understand what we're talking about. We're, we're making the, the solar system picture uh, so that we have some semblance of what it is, but it's nowhere close to what reality is because we can't quite grasp that. We can't get that full scale in our minds. We can't fully understand who he is. And this is why I felt the Spirit compelling me to do this. I had not planned on it. It was not the direction that we were going to go. I had also planned on just doing it for a few weeks and then kind of moving on to something else, not doing it all throughout uh, the fall. But I toyed with this series for several years, but never really pulled the trigger. But this felt like the right time, though. This felt like the Spirit was pushing me to do this now. And why? Why in the midst of a pandemic would we talk about the attributes of God? Why would we talk about theology? Why in the midst of national unrest, in the midst of a contentious uh, election, why do we do a series on the attributes of God when our world seems to be in complete chaos all around us? When we don't know week to week whether or not we're going to be able to eat Thanksgiving dinner with our families, either because the government won't let us or because we're afraid to because of what this virus has done. Why would we take the time to do a long stretch, a long series on some pretty in-depth topics talking about the nature and the attributes of God? After all, wouldn't it make more sense for us just to kind of show up and kind of get a feel-good sermon here for 25 or 30 minutes on a Sunday where I kind of 
uh, am super chipper and I tell some jokes and I kind of pick you up a little bit and send you guys out with a smile on your face and you've, you've maybe got something good to hang on to that makes you smile, that'll get you through the next seven days and get you through uh, the chaos that you're about to enter back into whenever you walk out these doors. Wouldn't that make more sense? Friends, it is my conviction that the more we know of God, the less tossed about by all these other things the world throws at us we will be. It serves as a ballast in our lives. You guys know what a ballast is? I'm not talking about with lights. I'm talking about in a ship. You know what a, a ballast is in, in a ship and how it works? What happens is you will intentionally take on something, either weight of some sort or, or water usually. That's like if you see the big tankers and they're spewing water uh, out the side, this is what they're doing. They're emptying their, their ballast. And the way it works is the ballast, the, they, they fill up the, 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 these giant ship, shipping uh, uh, boats, these big barges that are going uh, across the ocean, they fill them up with water uh, as they, as they uh, unload their, their cargo. And the reason that they do that is because it keeps the ship further in the water. Because they don't want the ship sitting on top of the water. Because the more the ship is sitting high on top of the water, the easier it gets tossed side to side. The more it gets moved side to side, the more the waves affect it. The more it rocks and sways, the bigger chance it has of losing its cargo. And so they'll put the cargo on it, but, and, and they'll try to find this right balance of having the ship deep enough in the water that it's sturdy, but not so deep that it becomes dangerous. This is how a ballast works. This is how good theology works for us too. The more we know about God, the more it stabilizes us in the midst of a world that will toss us to and fro, that will move us go, that will move us from side to side, will beat waves up against the side of our lives. And the more we have a good base of theology, the more we will be sturdy. It gives us stability when the world would mean to crash us. So whether it's a pandemic or a personal health crisis or a job crisis or a chaotic election or anything else, the more you know God, the more it puts everything in perspective and can prevent you from being completely knocked over and knocked around by all the waves that crash around us. And there will always be waves. Always. Lord willing, there will be a day, and hopefully it's not too far along, where, where this vaccine shows up and, and uh, restrictions start to list, lift, and it feels like this, uh, this virus is not just everywhere, that it's, it's, it's not this, this thing that's kind of dominating and, and ruling our lives, and we'll be able to go back to normal, if normal even exists anymore, but we'll be able to go back to, to something else, and we'll be able to to just go back to what we've been doing. But here's the thing. Just because that wave stops crashing up against the side of our ship, there's always going to be another one. There's no amount of chipper kind of pick-me-up sermons I can give you that will, that will keep those waves from coming. And frankly, there's no amount of kind of chipper pick-me-up sermon that I can give you that's going to be super helpful for you in a hospital room or at a graveside. Or whenever you're talking to your doctor or whenever you're struggling with a wayward child or whenever you're dealing with whatever else life has given to you. You're not going to need a chipper sermon. You're going to need to know there's a God who's there. You're going to need to know there's a God who's big enough in the midst of all of it. 
you're going to need to know that there's a fortress you can run into in the midst of the waves that keep crashing. Friends, these waves will keep coming at us. But God will always be bigger and stronger. And He will not leave us, even while they crash against us. And if you believe that to be true because of what you know about God, then these waves will not stand the ability to conquer over us. So let's see if we can kind of move quickly back through what we've covered and then we'll make a, we'll make a little bit of a transition into Thanksgiving and show you how these things work together. So let's see if we can run quickly through the attributes of God, what we have covered so far this year. There's a whole list of them. That He is majestic. That he is simple, a.k.a. he's not in parts. He's not made of multiple parts. He is a simple God. His aseity, his self-sufficiency, that he doesn't need anything else in order to be. His omniscience, he knows all. His omnipotence, that he is all-powerful. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere at all times. He is immutable. He does not change. He is eternal. He is not bound by time. He is loving. He is joyful. He is, he is peace. He is patience. He is kind. He is goodness. He is angry. He is holy. He is faithful. He is gentle. We've covered all of these things about God and said that He is each of these things in full measure. Not one at one time and one at another time. He is each of these things in full measure. That's what we've tried to look at, and we have just scratched the surface with each one of these topics. We could talk longer and deeper with every one of these topics. We could write dissertations on every one of these that we have covered, and y'all have gotten a 40-minute sermon. We could talk forever about just what we've covered, and there's a thousand more that we have not covered and we have not looked at yet. So now here's my question. So far into this thing, what do we do with this now? We have this knowledge about who God is. What do we now do with it? Hopefully the series has pressed you a little bit to want to know God more in who He is. To want you, for you to want to know more theology. Hopefully, through all of this, you do know God better and you do know more theology. But what do you do with it? Are you just smarter now? Like you're just a smarter, you're a better Bible student now. You're a better theologian now. Are you just smarter? Or do you, do you just know more about the Bible and about God? Our task this morning is to make sure that with this infusion of theology, with this, this depth of study that we have done looking at God, that we will then take what is now in our minds and make sure that it works its way into our hearts. And here's what I, I want you to see what I mean. You, if you open up your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20. I'm going to read two verses here that are probably not going to knock your socks off. Now, they're good ones, especially in the midst of a pandemic. They are good ones. And you'll probably hear them and think, hey, that's great. There's some relevance there. But I want you to see more about why Paul wrote them. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever 
and ever. Amen. That's a good little verse to hang on to in a pandemic, right? To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or that we think. Because we're asking for a lot right now. We're asking for God to intervene. We're asking for God to do something different. We're asking for God to work in the midst of all of this. We're asking for some pretty big things. But this says to him who can do far more abundantly than we can ask or we can even think. This verse is about the omnipotence of God, the sovereignty and all-powerful God that, that we serve. But what you have to see is that Paul is effectively wrapping up a section of teaching here in these verses. If you go back through Ephesians 1 and 2 in the beginning of chapter 3, what you see is that he's taught about the, the, what God has done on our behalf before the foundation of the world. He's talking about salvation. He's talking about the mystery of the gospel and how it's available to the Gentiles. And he then says, this is, is God who has done all, <clears throat> all of these great things and who can and will do more. In short, Paul does in three chapters some heavy lifting about what God has done which led him to then acknowledge who God is, his power and his sovereignty. So he's done this, this, this bit of theology here, this bit of work about who God is. And then what does that lead him to do? Verse 21 leads him to say, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul's theology does not make him smarter. Doing that bit of theology does not make you say, isn't that a great thing to know? Paul's theology, the aim of his theology, in every letter that he writes, and we can see several places where he does this, in every letter that he writes, he does theology so that he can make the connection to what we call doxology, which is thanksgiving and praise. Every time, theology leads itself to doxology. Knowing more about God leads to thanksgiving and praise. That is the paradigm that he works. That is the direction that he goes every time. Paul's theology has not led him to feel superior because he has this knowledge of God. It's not led him to be puffed up. Instead, his theology has caused him to be humble and to praise God and to be thankful for him. This is the consistent pattern in all of his letters. You go to the book of Romans. The book of Romans, he does this all over the place. He does it in Romans 8. He does it in Romans 11. He does it later in Romans 14 and 15. He does it early in Romans 5. All over the place, he does these different things. I'll read just a little bit here. Romans eleven thirty three. He's just talked about the mystery of salvation and how God works in salvation. So he's doing some of the heaviest lifting theologically in all of Scripture. In Romans 11.33, what he says is, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. So, oh, the depths of all these attributes of God, his wisdom, his knowledge, his, uh, his riches. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. And then he quotes, For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Or who has been given gift to him that he might be repaid? Then verse 36. Where does this theology about God drive him? To verse 36. For from him and through him and to him 
are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. So you see how Paul moves in this direction. He teaches with the aim of worship. All theology is about worship to Paul. And it should be for us too. Our worship of God should increase with our knowledge of God. If it doesn't, then you're not doing theology. You're doing cold, dead orthodoxy. Theology leads to praise and thanksgiving and worship. This morning, my hope for you is the same hope that I had at the very beginning of this series. That as we get to know God more, as we get to know Him in a deeper way, that your nerves would be stilled, that your... minds would be calm, that your hearts would be full, and that your praise would increase. As we head into Thanksgiving, as we head into these uh, next few days, perhaps uh, we would do well for one of us to, for, for each of us to maybe pick one attribute a day, where we think about, we reflect on maybe something that we learned over the course of the last couple of weeks. Maybe you go back and listen to a little bit of it online. Maybe you just read some of the verses that go along with it. Maybe you do your own Bible study about one of these attributes. Just pick one out. And then as you head toward Thanksgiving, let that study about who God is drive you to worship and to be thankful for who He is. You see, that's how it's designed to work. That's how we are designed to work. Where we go wrong is when we get our lives off scale. Whenever we let our lives become something different, when we see our lives to scale, when we see them as they truly are, only then can we begin to know true joy. When we see God as big and as grand and as worthy as He is, our lives fit into the right place. They fit into scale. And our response there is the appropriate one of worship. The problem comes whenever we don't see it to scale and we see God the same size as us. When we don't see it to scale and we see, we see God and we look at Him and we say, okay, He's here, I'm here, we're kind of equals. I mean, yeah, He's got a few things I don't, but we're basically kind of on the same page. And when that happens, our joy will begin to self-destruct. And then we'll, we'll wonder, why can't we find joy in the midst of all of this? Why can't we find freedom in the midst of all of this? And the reason why is because whenever you are the same size as God, you lose your awe for God. And when you lose your awe for God, you lose the ability to worship God. And when you lose the ability to, to live in awe and the ability to worship Him, you lose the ability to be thankful for Him. Because you now are the master of your ship. You now are in control of your own destiny because you are every bit what he is. It's whenever we put the things in the proper perspective that our thanksgiving increases because our awe and our worship increases. As those those work together, as one increases, so the other does. Our joy will always be tied to our awe. A right view of God leads to a thankful view of life. A shortness of thankfulness can almost always be traced back to a view of God 
that is not to scale. You see, when our perspective is off, anything can seem bigger than God. Just as a thumbnail can seem bigger than earth, so anything else we put out there can seem bigger, to God, bigger than God if our perspective is skewed. The closer we get to God, the bigger, he will see, the bigger we will see him. The more accurately we will see him. The further he is away, the easier it is for something to come in between him. I can hold this up. If I hold it right here, I can still see almost everybody in this room. If I hold it right here, I can't see anyone in this room. Why? Because this thing is too close. It's, it's huge in my field of vision. But whenever I put it where it belongs, I can see what I need to see. Friends, for far too many of us, there are too many things that come between us and God and get in our way, and they prohibit us from seeing what it is and who He is and everything that should, that should come from that. You see, for far too many of us, God is nothing more than just another item on our to-do list. We've got to go to the store. We've got to work out. We've got to take the trash to the dump. We've got to clean the refrigerator. We've got to cook dinner. And we've got to read the Bible. Like that, that read the Bible or pray, it takes up just as much space on the notebook paper as all those other things. And so it's equal to all those other things. But it's not. And he's not. He's so much more grand than we can imagine. But in our day-to-day lives, he's just another thing. And then we wonder why our thankfulness is waning. We wonder why our, our worship is wanting. We wonder why we don't sit in awe of him. And instead, we just wonder where he is. The reality is he's there. We just can't see him because we've got something blocking our our view. We must get to the place where we remember how big he is. As if we could even comprehend that. And we are small. When we get too big, gratitude will die. I want you to listen to these verses from the very beginning of where we started this series that have been the, uh, the marker for the title of this series from Job. Where God says, let me tell you all about who I am. Let me show you how big I am. And then Job responds once he gets his, his scale set correctly. Job responds, chapter 42, verse 2. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. That's what changed everything for Job. He'd heard of him. He had, he had some sense of, of what he was looking at. But it wasn't to scale. But now he's seen him. Now he realizes how big God is and how little he is. And it's only there that Job begins to find 
his joy. When Job's newly corrected vision becomes the same lenses that we look through, then we will be well on our way to true thanksgiving. This morning, we're going to conclude, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. I'm going to pray for us here in just a second, and then we're going to do the Lord's Supper. So if you've got this, you can go ahead and take this out. If you didn't get one, you can go grab you one out there. Uh, this is for those that are, um, that are following Christ. This is those that are, that are Christians. We're going to take this differently than what we typically uh, do. You're going to want to take the, the clear off the top here first. And you'll be able to get the, the bread out there. But we're going to take this Lord's Supper together. And as I said, it is the most important meal of the week for us. And the reason why is because what this is designed to do, what this is designed to do is to correct our vision, to remind us of what He's done, to give us the lenses to see who He is. And that's what we're going to do here in just a second. I'm going to pray for us. The band's going to come up, and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you gave us your word, that we can, we can know some sense of who you are. Father, we know that we can't fully grasp all that you are, the glory that you contain. We can't fully grasp everything that you are. But we ask that you would, that you would, in some sense, correct our vision this morning. Correct our vision as we lead, as we as we read through your word. Correct our vision as we go throughout life, and we and we we get so caught up with the the daily things. Father, help us to remember you are not just the same size as all the other stuff on our list, but you are magnificent. You are glorious. You are incomprehensible. And yet you've given us your word that we may comprehend some piece of who you are. And Father, as we take these elements, may we remember your grace and your mercy to us. That in all of your glory, you would condescend to be a man who would die on behalf of his creation. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians, and we'll start with the wafer here. And I'm just going to warn you, I've not tasted this stuff before, but I've heard that this is pretty dry, and I've heard the juice is pretty bad. Uh, But that's all right. Uh, We're not here because it tastes really good. In fact, I would urge you to let that remind you of what Christ did on the cross, of the sour wine that he was offered and refused, of the, the dryness in his mouth, of Uh, his body broken and his blood spilled. There was nothing intended to be great about that. It was all intended uh, to be painful and to be suffering. And it was intended to remind us of the greatness and the goodness and the love of God. And I will read as Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and that when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. If you'll take the top off.
And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. May we forever do that together here at Providence.